0: Welcome to Teaching Tuesdays! Today we're taking a break from our American Lit unit of the Romantic um, Writers and we are focusing on finishing up The Horse and His Boy, the book we've been reading on Fridays. So of course, like always, we're going to split today's episode into the different um, subsections or things that we need, I think, are important to discuss. And go from there, so hang on to your hats and follow along as best as you can. Alright, so the first section or sub-topic for discussion would be the themes. So the first theme, as always, the battle between good and evil. This, of course, is not only in this novel, but is in every novel throughout the all seven of... The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, these bat, this battle between good and evil, or battles between good and evil, are shown as both internal battles within each character to do the right thing, but also as an actual battle pitting people against people. So in this book, our physical or external battle was Rabbit Ash. Being the evil forces. Versus the good forces. That are Narnia. And Archenland. Now throughout the book. There are, is also the morale. Morally pleasing. Conclusion that shows. The path of good leading to victory. And the path of evil leading to defeat. And all of those. Humiliation and things like that. The next theme would be. Courage versus rashness. Um, so difference between acting with courage and acting with haste would be another good way to say that. The difference is most obvious in the comparison between Kor and Korin, But, you know, while sublime he's Shasta, Kor keeps his little party safe. He leaps from his horse to save Arv- Arvis the, from the lion's attack. And then he reaches Arch and Land in time to warn of Rapidash's impending, impending attack single-handedly. Korn, on the other hand, finds the prospect of fighting very exciting, but is inexperienced, and his lack of experience makes him a liability in battle. His insistence on fighting rather than waiting it out as instructed is not courage, but instead is rashness, wanting to be hasty and get things done quickly and get grow up too fast. And shows a little bit of his immaturity. Now, the next theme would be caution versus cowardice. Much like the juxtaposition of courage and rashness, the theme of caution versus cowardice is also presented throughout the book. It deals with the difference between letting everyone down by being a coward and having a healthy, appreh- appreh- apprehensive, apprehension for a dangerous task. So, for example, Shasta is often afraid and doubting his ability which so shows a healthy caution, but he never shies away from the task that he's needed for. He still does it even though he's afraid. Uh, the next um, theme would be faith. Um, it's just like all the other books that we read so far and the next four books that we're going to read faith is consistent throughout the book Um, the characters are called upon to have faith in Aslan and his plan for them they adhere to the plan without question which demonstrates their faith and the fact that Aslan is always present to save them when they need him and that just shows that their faith is well placed and justified the characters who have faith also seem to walk the path of good Whereas the evil characters do not have any obvious faith that guides them. And then the last theme is gender roles. Now, despite the fact that this book was written when society imposed upon women some very definite gender roles, they, for the most part, are reversed in the novel. For example, Calamarin is a language which appears to have a kind of arranged marriage system, and this is rejected by Arvores, who wants more for her life than to spend it with an older man that she despises. Similarly, Susan is not going to be forced into a marriage she does not want, simply because the prince, prince is too spoiled to take no for an answer. Now, even though, even the horses have gender reversal between the war horse Bree, ultimate, between Bree ultimately being too frightened to help Shasta rescue Iris where he win, although she's a female horse, is... Better suited to the demands of their journey. So, another dem- another demonstration of role reversal is that Bree the male is too vain to go back to Narnia with his tail in shabby condition rather than Huen, who would normally be expected as the female to be the one more concerned about her appearance. Alright, to continue, we're going to go move from similes to metaphors. So, the first metaphor I want to talk about is the thing of a dark sun. When Arvarez tells that her stepmother hated her back when she and Shasta first met, she says that the sun appeared dark in her mother's eyes as long as Arvarez was living with her father and her stepmother. This metaphor is, of course, for the jealousy and hatred that fills her stepmother and even the sun, which resembles in the force of the sun, of life and goodness, appears to be much darker when reflected in the eyes of a cruel and hate-filled woman. The next metaphor would be the lobster pot. So as mentioned, easy is but not easily out, as the lobster said to the lobster pot. This is a metaphor for the fact that it's difficult to write a wrong decision and that it's much easier to get into something than it is to get out of something just like in the example it's much easier for a lobster to be put into a pot but it's almost possible for him to get out again and save himself before it's too late so it's easy for him to get in there but worse comes to shove yeah third metaphor was the false jade so, calling someone false jade is a testament to the fact that they seem to have beauty and value on the outside, but in reality, this is, is fake. It's fake, and inside they're not beautiful at all. This metaphor relates to people who are one thing on the outside, but an entirely different thing on the inside. And then the last metaphor was at the dunghills. Um, the Tisraq states that a costly jewel retains its value even when hidden in a dunghill. This just means that strong characteristics such as honor, discretion, trustworthiness are just as valuable to those you do not like. Or in this case, in the subjects that he has no respect for as they are in the most royal or elevated characters. It is the content that is important, not the packaging it comes in. Alright, there are two similes I want to talk about. The first one were the beehives also known as the tombs of the ancient kings because they're said to be like great stone beehives it is not due not only to their shape and design but also to the fact that inside of them is constructed in the fashion of a maze and then the second one was the steel our arvis is described as hard and true as steel which is similar for her con- consistence and her reliability and also for that, for the fact That in times of crisis she's solid and reliable. Doesn't bend and waver. Alright. So we're going to move on to irony. Um, Of course the first thing I want to talk about is Aslan. There's two types of irony that I want to talk about when it comes to him. The first one is that. In Shasta's eyes. Aslan is the most terrifying yet the most beautiful sight he's ever seen. This is ironic because the two claims. That most terrifying yet the most beautiful uh, at the same time. They contradict each other, because usually what is terrifying to us is not seen as beautiful, and then on the flip side, what's beautiful to us usually goes as us a calm and pleasure, not a feeling of terror. So being terrifying and beautiful all at the same time, it's very contradictory, and very ironic. So then Aslan, on the the second thing I want to talk about Aslan, is him being the attacker, because throughout the entire series. Of the chronicles, Aslan's the force of good, so therefore it's ironic that in this book he's an aggressor and attacks arverus very severely. Sometimes that seems against the grain for force of, for good, but if Aslan's being an analogy or um not an analogy um uh, what is the word I'm thinking for an allegory for Christ. Christ and God always um, rebuke and chast- chasten, kid, those who are His. Just like a parent would rebuke their child because they want them to be to grow up and be good citizens, to be a good person, to not have terrible habits. And so they, whenever their child does something wrong, they Punish them in one way, shape, or form, whether that's, you know, grounding, fill in the blanks, whatever it may be. So, as long as the attacker, yes, at first, if you don't come from a parenting standpoint and or a religious standpoint, where you know that God does that to his those who are His, it's going to seem very strange and very out of place. But if you do come from the point of a parent rebuking a child when they do the wrong thing, giving them a punishment for that, and that God does the same thing to his children, where his children are believers, that it makes a lot of sense whenever it's shown in the book that way. The next thing that was ironic was Brie. Bree. So throughout their trip, Brady talks about the fact that he has been in war, therefore has a set of skills that seem wasted on a journey across the desert with two kids. So what's ironic about him is that he is needed to help save Iris, when he's needed to help save Iris from the lion. When she when the lion attacks her, he freezes, goes to pieces, and saves himself, leaving the child with who has no battle experience to save herself, and Huynh to help save her, and Chasa to help save her. Susan is also, in this book, another irony, because she doesn't participate in the battles. So, unlike Lucy, Susan doesn't participate in the actual fighting in this book, but in this case, this is very ironic. By consistently refusing to give in to Rabidash, she already achieved a victory against him that nobody else ever had, or has in the book. So even though she doesn't you know fight in a battle in the traditional sense of a battle that you would think of whenever it comes to Narnia, she did fight a battle that no one else really could. If you get my meaning. And then the last one for Ironing would be Edmund and traitors. So if you remember whenever they're in Archenland after the battle Talking about what to do with Rabidash. Edmund makes the statement. About traitors. and He gets that far away look in his eyes. Because Edmund's given to forgiving traitors. Because he knows. He has known a traitor. Who who was turned into a hero. Because it's ironic. Because he's actually referring to himself. Because he betrayed his brothers and sisters. In The Wardrobe. And more importantly. In that same book. He betrayed Aslan when they first came to Narnia, not only to, him, only to redeem himself bravely later on. Alright, so now some imagery this is the next thing Docket. Um, so the medieval wars an image that I'm gonna bring up. In Narnia, Archonland, Calmar throughout the entire chronicle of Narnia Chronicles of Narnia, firearms and gunpowder are not something that's known to these countries, at least at this point, up through Book 3, up through Horse and Boy in chronological order. So war has always been carried out in a medieval fashion. Armored fighters, typically of the wealthier noble classes, travel about on horseback and fight from horseback. They are armored chiefly in mail. They carry shields, fight with swords or lances. The calimer and salvo Armor and weaponry is reminiscent of 12th-13th century Turkish-Persian technologies. Whereas Narnian and Archlander arms and armaments resemble medieval European technology. Because you have to remember C.S. Lewis was born and raised in England. He was Brit. Therefore, of course, he's going to use something that he knows well. Which is European technology and medieval European British primarily information in his books for his heroes, the next imagery I want to bring up is the thing of slavery in the beginning of the novel shasta is there's that whole conversation about him being sold as a slave, and Arvors, whenever they Shasta and Brady first meet her and when she was living in impressive conditions so repugnant that to her that she persuades her father to offer her. And an arranged marriage simply so that she can escape. Um Huyne, um escaped from his Calamaran or- owner. And he's the one who persuades Shasta to flee in the first place. Huin's taken with um Arvores whenever she runs. So the fact that slavery is common in Calamaran but not in the Archonland is one of the things that sets Calamaran noblemen up as the antagonists next thing would be the aquine, or the horses, or, or donkeys, zebras, anything that looks resembles a horse. Two of the most, of course, significant characters in the novel are Bree and Huen, who are horses, talking horses. And Chas and Iris spend a great deal of time in the saddle on their backs. So it's natural natural to expect that horses, saddles, bridles, um, which are worn by the talking horses, sometimes for parents, and the other horse-related imagery to appear throughout the book. Following Rabidash's defeat, he is transformed by Aslan into a donkey, which, of course, if you think of do- a donkey, thinks stubborn and foolish. That's why Rabidash was turned into a donkey. That transformation was reversed when he goes to his own temple in Man and shows appropriate submission, but if he strays more than 10 miles, that transformation will return permanently. This keeps Rabadash from trying to invade Archenland and Narnia again during his lifetime, therefore giving him a reason not to fall into temptation again. The next image would be twins, and that's the last one I want to talk about. So, throughout most of the book, Shasta is the twin brother of Korn, who's the crown prince of Archenland. And we don't really find that out until the last chapter and a half. So, in fact, Shasta is the older of the two. Is therefore the rightful heir to the throne. Kicking corn out of being the crown prince. Um, but twins and pairs. Appear throughout the book. Shasta and Avaris Are the two young escapees from Calendron. They're seen as a pair. They develop a strong loyalty to one another. Despite an initial mutual dislike. And of course in the end. We find out that they may get married. Bree and when the two talking horses. Make up another pair. The young... There are two rulers of Narnia, Edmund and Lucy are siblings, and also appear as a pair. Then there are several other different kinds of pairs represented the same genders and same and different gender siblings, mixed gender platonic friends and such as Wyn and Brie, and even a brief appearance of Arvis's best friend Les who helps Arvis escape the capital city. All right to end today's episode I want to talk about some discussion questions. Um, that could also be essay questions if you So if you like writing about them or if you have a different opinion than what I have. Um, Shasta and Arvis, this is the first one. Shasta and Arvis both make assumptions about each other. What are some of those that they assumptions that they make and are those assumptions right or wrong? Well, first off, Shasta assumes Ardivis will not wait for him at the caves, as they agreed, because she has not been very friendly. He assumes that she will only be only too pleased to continue on with her journey without him, and in fact would rather do so. He ended up being wrong about that. Although she had been friendly with him, she has both pride and honor, and would not consider backing out of agreement. Arvores, on the other hand, assumes that because Shasta is not an experienced horseman and is a poor son of a fisherman, that he will not be much of a warrior. But that's proved wrong when he leaps from his horse and goes back to try to rescue her from the lion's attack at a great danger to himself. So as I said, if you have anything else that you want to add or change, by all means, please do so. The second question that I had was what are the main differences and the main similarities between Arverus and Lasslerine? Well the most obvious difference between those two is that Lacering will put up a great deal of traditional female oppression if it means that she's able to accumulate jewels and new dresses. She loves to show off her clothes and wants everyone in town to see her new things. Whereas Arverus is far less concerned about fashion and a pampered lifestyle. Are for, more concerned about breaking free from the traditional role carved out for her by her people. The one thing that they both have in common is honor, in their friendship, and to their word. Although it would cause problems for her she should she be caught, Lassurene does not hesitate to help her friend escape and it doesn't occur to her to betray her for what would be cons- a considerable o- reward. The next question which just so happens to be the last one. Who are the strongest female roles in the novel? Well, Arvris and Susan prove that they are strong role models because they refre- refuse to allow their lives to be dictated by men. Arvris does not want to marry the man chosen for her and so runs away rather than having to spend her life in misery with and with the man that she doesn't love. Susan has made it clear that she doesn't want to marry Rabadash and that this is her decision to make, not his. Both are good examples of women in a traditional society, carving out roles for themselves that go beyond merely being someone's wife. Queen Lucy could also be seen as a strong role model because she fights in battle alongside men and has honed her skills so that she is more skilled than any other archer in Narnia, which is, again, outside the normal roles expected of women. Alright, that is the end of today's Teaching Tuesday. I hope you come back again on Friday to hear the beginning of book number four in the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian.